Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is KIOS's own award-winning radio host, Mike Hogan. Hogan shares how the laughter and storytelling that epitomized his early family life inspired his own commitment to a life in radio, acting on the theatrical, television, and movie stages, doing live sport, play-by-play announcing, and even becoming a stand-up comedian before returning to radio's airwaves, where, as well as being our local host of NPR's show, All Things Considered, Hogan presents the live and local feature. I am genuinely interested in each person I'm talking to about what they're doing, because they're doing cool stuff. By joining the staff at KIOS as the local morning edition host in November of 2017, Mike Hogan's radio career came full circle. His first radio job was with St. Louis, Missouri NPR affiliate 88.1 FM KDHX. In between, Hogan was an actor based in Los Angeles, appearing in the movie Stay Tuned with John Ritter, and on the television shows Hearts of Fire and Beverly Hills 90210 after which he became a play-by-play live hockey broadcaster, including an opportunity with the Omaha Lancers that brought Hogan to Omaha, where he met his wife of more than 24 years. Radio jobs over the years have been mixed with engagements in sales, IT. Radio jobs over the years have been mixed with engagements in sales, IT consulting, and stand-up comedy. Hogan now for KIOS is the digital media coordinator and local host of NPR's show, All Things Considered, and his own award-winning live and local feature. Mike Hogan, welcome to Lives. Oh, thank you, Stuart. Thank you very much. Uh, December 7th, 1941, uh, your grandfather was at Pearl Harbor on that day when it was uh, attacked. So tell me about that story, and also not just about that story, but how you were told about that story. When I was really little, and, and I found out that my grandfather, he was in the Navy, uh, obviously, if he was at Pearl. Uh, so when I was a little kid, I go, hey, Grandpa, Grandpa, uh, tell me a war story. Tell me a war story. And But but he wasn't telling, going to tell you a war story, right? You're, you're seven. You're eight. It has no impact. So I was, I think I was freshman or sophomore year in college, and uh, every summer we went to northern Minnesota where my my grandparents and in fact, all of my dad's relatives lived and the moment was right as we're all sitting outside in this, you have to sit in a screen house, which is literally a house made of screens because the mosquitoes are so bad. Uh, you'll need a transfusion after an afternoon out because, because it's just the mosquitoes carrying away small children. It was, we had to anchor them down. So anyway, the, the, the moment seemed right. And my dad said to his dad, Hey dad, can you tell us a couple of stories from the war? That happened a couple of years in a row. And so the, the, what I know about Pearl is this, uh, my grandfather was an officer. He was Lieutenant commander on the USS Tennessee, which was caddy corner inside, but caddy corner from the Arizona. He was in his dress whites to, uh, go to church. So as he's getting ready to go to church, a plane, his buzzes by super low and he looked up to get the tail number because he was going to report this hot dog for for coming too close 
and his blood just ran cold because he saw the the rising sun uh, logo of Japan. And then next uh, plane came in strafing the deck. Just dunk, 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 dunk. He immediately jumped into a hatch and pulled the hatch down as 50 caliber bullets went king, 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 right across where he was. And then he came back up and a guy was cut in half there, uh, but he was still alive. And, and the guy's screaming, Commander Hogan, help me, Commander Hogan, help me, you know. And his commanding officer came out, Hogan, man that gun. That man's gone. Man that gun. And he had to leave this poor guy's side and get on a gun and start firing back as Japanese planes were strafing and bombing and and uh, and all this. And uh, and then uh, later he was ordered. They brought in a gunner's mate to, who was an expert at this, and he, he was going to do other things and help with the wounded and things like that. And then the Arizona went up, and uh, I mean it burned his hair, burned his eyebrows. <laughs> you know, you think about how far away he was, even though he's catty corner from that ship in the parking lot, if you will. Um, yeah, it was something. It was something. Um, I know you're one of 23 grandchildren. So so what was your family like then? You know, what was your, what stands out to you from your childhood and, and, and what are some of those um, memories and, and activities, you know, there's storytelling in, you know, to the north of here. Um, but what, what are some of those uh, traditions and, and activities uh, and memories that stand out to you from, from childhood? Two things. Uh, for our family, laughter and music. Uh, and it's it's very, very distinct. And it's so funny because I didn't really think about it until later in life as I became a performer. Uh, so I was an actor, as you mentioned in the bio. My grandfather used to keep those little pocket spiral notebooks. And when the family would gather around the, the, the table, either in the screenhouse or, or the dining room table, You'd see in, in his shirt pocket, because he always wore a dress shirt, you'd see in his shirt pocket, there was a spiral notebook. And he would just surreptitiously glance at it. It reminded him of his jokes that he was going to tell when the time was right and, 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 and timing. And my father, very, very clever, very funny man. And so we told jokes. We watched funny things. We, you know, the, the Dean Martin roasts. I grew up on those. Uh, hilarious. Just hilarious. You know, Johnny Carson, <laughs> when I was seven or eight, I, I started doing an impersonation of Johnny Carson, which is really funny if you think about this little high-voiced kid doing Johnny, you know. so that, and, then, and then music was huge. Oh, my gosh. My dad started playing in the church noon guitar group very early on. And um, for social events, I mean, we would have friends over and, and it was all about, you know, bring your guitars, bring my dad played the accordion. Uh, so there's polka parties uh, from a very early age, all that stuff. And so music and laughter were just huge, huge part of, of our life. In fact, for, for many years, we lived in St. Louis. And so it's a, that's about a 650 mile drive up to Northern Minnesota from where we lived in St. Louis. And so 1300 round trip. And, and if you're going for, we take a two week vacation up there, right? So you have to have clothes and suitcases and all this stuff. And then my dad would bring two guitars and accordion and all packed in there. Finally, my mom's like, 
you can bring the accordion. Your brothers and sisters have guitars. Just stop with the car being pet. We don't even have room for the children. You know, <laughs> it feels inevitable that you would be involved in performative endeavors in in your life. But you shared something in our conversations before about having embraced the theater when I think you're a teenager. I'm not exactly sure what age. Maybe ninth grade. Is that when you first began to realize that actually? being an actor, being involved in theater was a vocation. It was a career that could be pursued. Uh, yes. I, I had tried every junior, uh, the school system I went to, it was a junior high seven through nine. And then you went to the senior high 10 through 12. So seven, eighth grade, I tried to get the drama class and it was full and I, and then, and I couldn't get it. Finally, ninth grade. If when you're your last year, you get priority of, uh, of a class, you know, so I, I finally got to do this drama class and we did scenes and all that stuff. And that's fine. And, but there was one where you were supposed to write a, a scene and create this entire character on your own. And so what I did was I wrote this, this scene of a, a, a guy who's shot and stumbles into a, a deserted building. I was robbing a store and I got shot and I die. And it's the, you know, the classic, you know, Gee, I'm sorry for my sins. I'll never have this. I'll never. Have and there was a couple of cute gals in class. Literally, they they were in tears when I did this death scene. And I thought, that is so cool. <laughs> wow. I was I was stunned that this thing that I did, I was so nervous to do it. I was, you know, they're going to laugh me off this stage and that's not what happened. And, you know, that was a watershed moment for me. And so when I got to senior high, I tried out for all the plays and I, and I took a bunch of drama classes with my electives and, and that became what I did. And I had always worked with computers and, and computers were very young when I was young. The, the, uh, I mean, we had an acoustic coupler. There was no internet. Um, so, so when it was time for college, double major. I'm going to do a double major, theater and uh, computer sciences. Theater, computer sciences, this will be great. I can, I can do this stuff and I'll have a great career to fall back on it. I went into that first collegiate uh, programming class and, oh, yawn. Charlie Brown's teacher is all I can hear. And I, so I dropped the class, picked up another theater class, and, and, I, and I never looked back. You did pursue work, career in what we might think of as mainstream business, IT consulting, sales, that kind of thing. But, but which came first? Was it, did, did you go into uh, acting. Uh, acting first? So, so I graduated uh, from Drake University in 2003. It took me 21 years. Now, not contiguously, because I would owe four and a half million dollars if I had gone to school that long, right? But uh, uh, I did not graduate with my peers, you see. And I even went back for an additional semester, met a great buddy of mine. We were friends for years uh, from Wales, actually, Tenby, Wales, south, southern coast of uh, Wales. And uh, <laughs> didn't complete my classes from that one either. I had a very good time. <laughs> but and socially, I developed greatly. <laughs> However, I also learned how to to, to pound a beer. Uh, but I didn't graduate, so I, I just uh, I moved back to uh, St. Louis, and uh, and I went to start my acting career. 
And I did. And there was a lot of work. St. Louis is a union town. So uh, industrial films are, are training films, right? There's a, there's a huge amount, or there was a huge amount of work there. And voiceover work, there's a huge amount of voiceover work there. So there were several agencies, but the, the number one agency was called Talent Plus. I went in, did a video audition and, to do a video audition, and the camera broke as, as I was doing this. And so I was going to have to come back. And so uh, Margaret was the woman who's the gatekeeper there. And your phone calls don't go anywhere except through Margaret. So I was always very nice to her. And it took them weeks to get their camera fixed. And of course, I'm getting frustrated because I'm, I was working five or six different jobs, you know, waiting tables here, doing this there. Uh, and so I kept trying to get back in to finish my audition. And so I would always say to Margaret, hi, Mike Hogan, guy who broke the camera. You know, and that was a running joke that, you know, so ugly I broke the camera, you know, type of thing. Such a bad actor, the camera quit. And uh, finally, I got to, got to do my audition. They agreed to take me on. And, and, uh, and then you do that whole process of the headshots and getting it all together and everything. And, and, and then you start going. And I started getting, you know, I get a little bit of work here and there. And you think about these, these union shoots. So this is 1986. It was $286 a day after wages if you got a day of shooting, uh, which was a, it was an, uh, an eight hour, well, it's actually a nine hour day because it's one hour off for lunch. And then 10th and 11th hours, you go into time and a half. And then after the 12th hour, it's double time. And that's how everything is, is configured for this, you know. Uh, long story short, although I think we're well past that point, I, my agent took me to lunch one day and I said, well, what's this for? And she said, uh, you are the only person under the age of 30 making your entire living as an actor. Cause I was slowly able to shed these jobs, uh, these other jobs, the waiting tables. So one of the things that I, that I was lucky enough to stumble into was there was a murder, murder mystery dinner theater in St. Louis. And the gal who had garnered the gig, her partner chickened out and quit. And she had seen me, and this also coincided with my entry into radio, KDHX. I, I was in a, an original play for the, I guess it would have been the 86, yeah, the 86 election. So it was a politically charged play. Uh, in the many places we performed that play, we performed it in front of a live audience, broadcast live on KDHX. Well, one of the bits, so it was the, those, those Ronco records, you know, hits of the 70s. You know, well, this was political hits and I'm just standing in front of a microphone. It was just me. And I was like, Runko presents political hits of all time. Remember this one? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you could do for your country. Or how about old tricky Dick Nixon? I am not a crook, you know, blah, blah. And, and I, and I rapid fired like nine, 10 voices live on this thing. And it was super cool because it, it, it was a showstopper. It got applause at the end of the thing. Well, the station manager for KDHX is like, how would you like to do radio? Radio? Hmm. That might be fun. So I did. I picked up a job working radio there, and, and that's why I started doing it. But I was still a, uh, a professional actor. And, and so this Bissell Mansion thing was that also I did a lot of voices and characters. We wrote them. Uh, they were getting great reviews in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and made, we're making a really good living. So I immediately dashed that against the rocks and picked up everything and moved to LA. <laughs> so I, 
I mean, you shared with me a long list of uh, well-known people that you've um, you've performed with, uh, engaged with in some way, shape, or form, and and you know they include people like Ed Asner. You mentioned uh, John Ritter in the bio, Lou Diamond Phillips, Kelsey Grammer, John Rassenberger, Mike Myers, John Goodman, Peter Paul and Mary, Al Lewis, uh, and 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 the list goes on and on. Bo Bridges and 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 Chuck Berry and, and John Denver and, and and on goes this list. So you're talking about how great this gig was, this life was in St. Louis, and then you throw that in to go to L.A. So we know it aspects of it turned out pretty good, but what was it that took you to L.A. and how? How did you get into acting there? I, um, I I tried to add to put some business smarts into it. I had bought some books on uh, different agents in LA and done the research on because you know for me to show up at William Morris, I'd be lucky if security didn't you know introduce my face to a plexiglass. You know, <laughs> I mean, so so obviously that's not going to be a be a thing, but. Uh, uh, so I, but I wanted something bigger than just, a, just a tiny agency. I wanted to step up. I was the biggest agency in St. Louis. Um, and, and in fact, one of my, cause I had two or three agents working for me in St. Louis and one of them, she ended up moving to California, coincidentally went to work for William Morris in the, uh, um, in the script division. But, uh, I, I, I did the research and then I, and so this is, this is 1989. And, and so I don't, we don't have the tools that we have today to do your own postcards and all this stuff. I mean, I had to have this stuff done at a printer and, and I couldn't design it on a computer. I didn't own a computer. Right. Um, although I did by the end of 89, I, I owned a computer. My, that was my first one that, uh, that, that was mine. Um, but it, so, so I sent out several packages that included um, my headshot, my resume. Uh, a uh, uh, I was doing a lot of voiceover work, a whole lot of voiceover work. In fact, I, I came very, very close to being the voice of a television station. I would have been the guy who, who in between programs goes, next on Gilligan's Island, Gilligan finds gold. The skipper is jealous. Join the laughs. You know, that job, you go in in the morning and and you do an entire day, and it was uh, it was a set salary of like twenty eight thousand dollars a year for a three hour day, uh, uh, five days a week. It was magnet, you know. So so things were moving that direction to just stay in St. Louis, and 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 if I would have gotten that job, I would have stayed. But uh, the it was the young group who had seen my. Bissell Mansion Murder Mysteries, who wanted me to, to, they were trying to drag me in. The old guard wanted to keep the guy that had been the voice for, I don't know, 25 years maybe. And it's fine. I don't begrudge him anything. Fine by me. It's their TV station. Um, so that's when I was like, I'm going to go to LA. I, if I can do this here, I know I can go out there. So I had also, um, I had coded each ret stamped return addressed postcard telling them the week that I was going to be out in LA to, I was going out to do a scouting trip. So they can make an appointment with me. And I had it, I had it coded by numbers. So when the postcards came back in, I knew who was responding, when the appointment was, you know, all that stuff. And I met with, uh, and only, I mean, several people were kind enough to say, no, thanks, not interested. But uh, a couple of people said they'd meet me. And one was a voiceover only agency, a commercial uh, voiceover agency. 
when I went out and met them and I walked in and in the lobby was Tom Bosley, who played the dad on Happy Days, right? Amongst many other things. He had a great career. And he's in the lobby. So if this is his agency. You know, he's with this agency and these people want to talk to me. And I talked to this gal and it went really well. And she's like, yes, you should move out here. Um, uh, and it's just fantastic. So I got it all together, got my replacement for Bissell Mansion. So my partner would have somebody and, and did the whole thing. Meanwhile, James Spader and Susan Sarandon were filming a movie in St. Louis called White Palace. And my agent called me and said, uh, White Palace wants you to be James Spader's stand-in. I was like, oh my gosh, wow, that, that would be fantastic. Because I, I haven't told her, but I'm thinking I'm moving to L.A. I could do a movie. Before I even get to L.A., I could have a movie, right? What's it pay? It's $25 a day. Well, Bissell Mansion, I, I was making $150, $175 a day and saving up for, you know, and all that. And so I said, well, and it's for a month. I had to, to give it up for a month. I said, if they'll give me a line, give me a part with one line in it so I can get a one-line piece of film, then I'll do it. And, uh, and, and they said they would try, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't put it down on paper. And so I had to decline. So that was my, my one degree of separation from spending a month with James Spader <laughs> as his stand in and twin. And, uh, uh, but I was like, this is all good. Uh, and so I, I shot out to LA and I got an appointment with, with that agency that was so responsive and we sat down and she said, all right, good. Now that you're here, um, go out and get some credits and then we'll talk about representing you. What? <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, but I thought you said, well, yeah, yeah, just get some credits out here now. And I'm like, oh, welcome to Hollywood, dummy. Wow. Wow. So that was my very first welcome to Hollywood moment. There were. There were others to come. <laughs> when you look back on that time, and obviously we'll come to why you left the Hollywood, but um, what are some of the lessons that you drew from those experiences and, and perhaps lessons and maybe what stands out as a success and perhaps, you know, maybe even a lesson around failure? Well, the the lesson around failure would be Trust your gut. Um, uh, Anson Williams played uh, Patsy Weber on on uh, Happy Days, which is I, I didn't even realize it until this this very moment talking to you that because I I just told you the Tom Bosley story, which I haven't thought about in years, and then uh, I'm going to tell you the Anson Williams story here. But I just need to jump ahead that um, shortly before I left L.A., I got to know Marion Ross very well, who was Mrs. Cunningham on Happy Days, and she was a doll. Uh, I waited on her and her boyfriend. Uh, several times, and, and she was just the sweetest thing in the whole world. I can't believe my huge connection to Happy Days. <laughs> that's how odd. Um, so Anson, well, I, I was at uh, I was at lunch with a casting director. She cast me in Stay Tuned. Um, I I knew her daughter very well. Her daughter was best friends with with uh, uh, my roommate in uh, in L.A. and. Uh, Penny had 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 a falling out with Anson, but we ended up at the same restaurant. Anson invited us over to his table to have lunch, and they really mended a fence. And Anson was directing a whole bunch of B-level movies. I had a lot of things going on, and 
he seemed to like me. And so I was going to get a shot at, at reading for some of this, see if I get some, some parts. And he had said, yeah, just send your uh, headshot and resume over to my office. And I, I think he mentioned something like century city. You could, you can look it up, you know, or call the director's guild or something. So I did, and I called the director's guild and they gave me an address to send this to. And it just didn't ring right with me that this was the right address. And instead of really pursuing it or calling Penny and confirming it or whatever, I, I went ahead and sent it to this address that, that he gave me. Well, it was his home. And, and in, in my letter, I referenced the lunch with Penny Perry and all this stuff. Now they've just mended this fence. Anson's wife had just had a miscarriage. He gets a headshot and a resume, which is irritating as heck to a director who gets inundated with this all the time, uh, opens it up. And first thing it says is, Hey, Penny Perry told me to send this to you. But remember our lunch wasn't that great. Uh, really? Thanks again for the burger, you know, the type of thing. And he calls up Penny and just chews her out. Now they've got a rift again. Penny calls me up. What did you do? What did you do? You've ruined it with Anson, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, all of a sudden the whole thing blows up in a puff of smoke. And Oh, by the way, my, uh, I had an agent at that time. It was good mid-sized agent. Um, my agent had just said, we're trimming our client list, but we're keeping you fantastic. So I invested four or $500 in new postcards and pictures and all this stuff. And, uh, and then I get a letter from, they've dropped me. And that was uh, Penny pulled the trigger on that too. So this up and coming career is literally crashed right into a brick wall. And it was really my own fault because I knew in my gut, yeah, I think his office is in century city. Should have followed up, should have been diligent, should have made sure that that went off exactly without a hitch and didn't. Um, you can well imagine that did not happen again. What do you look back on with some sense of, I don't know, pride or a sense of accomplishment or just sheer joy? Well, uh, the movie Stay Tuned was, was incredible. Um, I shot for 23 straight hours on Stay Tuned. So, and, and John was, John Ritter was the nicest person you'll ever meet. I, I did the show Hearts of Fire. Uh, that was he and Marky Post and Ed Asner. That's where I worked with Ed Asner and Billy Bob Thornton, actually, as well. Billy Bob and I spent a lot of time together. He was, he was a funny guy. My agents were stunned because the casting director for Hearts of Fire, she doesn't use uh, uh, agencies. I mean, she keeps her own list of people. So when my agent got the call, they said, how do you know Fran Bascom? And I said, Fran Bascom, oh, I bet John introduced my picture to her. And, and they were like, wow, I mean, we can't get anybody into Fran Bascom. She doesn't. I, I read for three different episodes before I got the episode I got. But uh, John, meanwhile, he had invited me to come see tapings. And he was so gracious. So I, I would go go to a taping and I'm in the crowd and when they would have a break, he would find me in the audience and he would come over and, and, and wave me down. And so in front of you know 300 people who are watching this taping, 
John Ritter has just come over and waved me down to, hey, how are you? How's it going? And a couple of laughs and everything really make you feel like a big shot, really make you feel important. Uh, that, was a, that was quite a gift uh, that, that he would give. So, uh, so, so stay tuned. I thought stay tuned was some really good work. I, I, I worked hard on it. I, I, um, uh, I worked hard to get that Mike Meyer character. I played the, I, it's a, the movie is about all sorts of, uh, iconic or, or things that were going on in the nineties. And one of them was Wayne's world. And I am Wayne from the Wayne's world segment. It was, it was fun. It was good work. You know, it was really good work. And, uh, and, and John appreciated it. I worked, uh, um, Peter Himes, the director, big A-list director guy. I go on the set and I said, uh, uh, hi, Mr. Himes, Mike Hogan. Um, Hey, I've I've got a couple of things I'd like to try here. You know, see if, if you'd like this, he goes, all right, two things for you, Mike. Uh, one, I'm Peter. Mr. Himes is my dad Two, you know, way more about this character than I do. I'll pull you back. If I need to, you go do your thing. And so I got to do my thing. And, and I think three things that I wrote or improvised made the film, made the final cut, which was, that's also cool. That's a real nice sense of pride. And so in, in your life, you, you've talked about this love of performing, uh, also uh, this enjoyment you've had with radio too. Um, and so in the spirit of freedom and improvising, uh, at some point you depart LA and become a play-by-play uh, live ice hockey announcer. I did the quake in 94, uh, the, uh, Northridge quake. I was, uh, three miles from the epicenter well, you get a little, I mean, I think the term PTSD is thrown around a lot, but there, there were between 500 and a thousand aftershocks a day for six weeks. And every time most of these earthquakes, they start the exact same way. You don't know that it's going to end in four seconds and not get any bigger than the little rumble, but they all start with that little rumble, right? And I had a manager, I, I had acquired a, a, a different manager at that time. She was so freaked out by it. She grabbed her two daughters and shot off to New York and just left. And so again, had management in place that, you know, left. Uh, I said, I got to do something else. And my roommate says, hey, over at the community college, there's a sports casting class on Saturdays. You ought to check it out. Go do something, you know, like, yeah, it's a good idea. So I did, and, and, and it happened to be you know, the, the season that was going on was hockey. And I'd been to hockey games with my father, I, I, you know, all that. And I went to the Long Beach Ice Dogs, which was the AAA affiliate, a shared affiliate with uh, the Anaheim Ducks and uh, the LA Kings. And I got a press pass to go there. And it was my birthday that year. The, the very day was my birthday. And I was there with my little tape recorder to just do the game by myself. And the music went up and the lights went on and the guys hit the ice, the excitement in the crowd. And I literally, literally got chills. And I was like, this is exactly where I am supposed to be. This is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And I, I dove right in. I took the same sportscasting class, not for credit per se, but uh, just took it every semester. And I read every single hockey book in the Santa Monica Community College Library. There were 106. And I read every single one of them to get this history and the names and the, and, and the feel. And the, Cause I never got to play hockey as a kid. And I just immersed my entire life in, in hockey. Then started sending out tapes and came very close to, uh, I actually came in second for um, the, uh, 
UNO Mavericks uh, to be their voice. And then they finally decided they, they picked another guy who's that's fine. It was heartbreaking, but it was fine. And, and so I was going to wait to send out another set of tapes and everything. And, and my dad had started an IT consulting company and he, uh, uh, the way I got lineups for the Long Beach Ice Dogs was uh, uh, the I, I knew a little bit of HTML coding, not much. So I made a super rudimentary site that that they could transfer the lineups to me. So I'd have my lineups on time to study them, so that I could go practice my games, you know. And my dad said, "Look, I'm I'm looking to start a web department." He was in IT consulting uh, with with companies doing their their ERP systems, enterprise resource planning systems, that type of thing. He said, I'm looking to start a web thing. You know more about it than I do. He called it, the, have you ever seen the movie uh, Dumbo? Uh, uh, Dumbo, to, to help him fly, he was given a magic feather. Okay, so my dad says, look, I'll, uh, it wasn't really a magic feather. It was for mentally for him, right? My dad says, look, uh, I know you want to do hockey and everything. If you want, I'll toss you a magic feather. You start my web department. Once we get it staffed up, you go do whatever you want to do, uh, you know, but it's, it's somewhere to go so you can get out of L.A. if you want to get out of L.A. And I said, okay, because I just done the earthquake, and then we had the Rodney King riots. Uh, and so I did, and I called up the Omaha Lancers, said, can I get a press pass? They said, press pass, nothing. You, you got a tape, you do this, because we need a hand with this. And so, oh, there's, there's some serendipity, so. So I packed up, packed up my stuff and I moved out here and, uh, was doing the play-by-play hockey. And, oh, and then I, I went down to K car at the time, uh, asked them if they needed anybody. And there was a sports Saturday, sports Sunday show, uh, just sports talk. I got hired to do the sports. So, so I work in radio jobs and working the IT job. And, and, and it was, it was great. I certainly had a, a view that to the play-by-play announcing was Probably you just watch the game and you talk quickly and you say, what's happening? There's a huge amount, I think, in all the things that you've shared with us, where you've done a huge amount of work in the background to make what we get to see seem so effortless. Uh, Thank you for that, for one. Uh, um, Yes, that's true. I had a watershed moment in college that that I think put me on the direction of that. Cause one of the other things I used to do is I was trying to learn how to do play by play, particularly for hockey. I would watch hockey games with those, you know, those little composition books you can buy for a buck or something. Uh, so I would just listen to great announcers, Gary Thorne, uh, Mike Emmerich, Doc Emmerich is uh, one of the greatest hockey announcers of all time. He just retired a couple of years ago. And I, w- there were certain phrases the, the way, cause you think about, you know, what happens in hockey Guys take the puck from one end of the ice and they try to put it in the net at the other end of the ice. That's it. Now, <laughs> you know, you're going to talk about this for two and a half hours. You better be able to talk about it differently. Right. So I would write down certain turns of phrases that that caught me not not to copy them, not to steal them, but to to open up the vocabulary grab bag in my head so that I would think differently. Uh, maybe I would, I would think in, in allegory or, or something uh, or, or a nifty turn of a phrase. And yeah, when you first start out, you're trying to be clever and have that clever thing, but, but 
it's more than that. I mean, it it because it, it it has to come out naturally because the game moves so fast. So when I was dating my wife, uh, I was doing play by play, and I I'd, I'd given her tickets. Uh, she went with a friend. I'd given her tickets uh, from the IT company actually. So she was sitting far away, and I was up in the broadcast area, and she was listening to me on the radio. And, uh, and it was the first time she'd ever heard me do this. And so I asked her if she enjoyed it, and she did, but it was just an odd little energy there. You know, date went well and fine. And so she joined me a different time, but she sat right behind me that time. Well, when we left, she said, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I sat behind you. I said, why is that? She said, well, did you know that there's like a five or seven second delay at your radio station? I said, no, I didn't. She said, I thought you were an idiot. I mean, they would score a goal. <laughs> it took you five seconds to say they had scored a goal. She didn't realize that I was actually on top of the action, you see. <laughs> so, so that was that, that was helpful. But the the so the, the, the watershed moment regarding the preparation, I, I always believe that thing that if you you can do whatever you set your mind to, you can do whatever you set your mind to. I, I just Strolled by the theater department one day in college and a gal's crying in a professor's office because her directing project was the play bent uh, one, one act of the, the second act of the play bent. It was, was her one act play to direct. It was supposed to go up the next day and there's only two actors in it. It's uh, it's uh, uh, two gay men who are in a concentration camp and one has uh, he has acquired a Jewish star, which was a step up from the pink triangle of being gay in a concentration camp. Okay. They fall in love there, but it's within the confines of this concentration camp. And, and, uh, and so it's just the two of them mostly standing at attention talking. That's about the bulk of the play. One of her actors got a bleeding ulcer and was taken to the hospital. There's no way he can do it. And her thing goes up tomorrow. And the professor says, Hogan, look, do you think you could do this? I mean, you could read a little bit from the script if you want, or you could call for line or, or whatever. I'm like, when is this? And, and I'll never read it. Cause it was literally 36 hours from that moment. I, I'd never even read the play. I said, yeah, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. And so they gave me a script and, and I, went outside and a bunch of my friends were there. And I said, can you guys help me and, and uh, run lines with me? And I'm reading this play and memorizing this play. And I, I memorized this play and 36 hours later, I'm performing this play in front of these people for, for this gal's grade. And, and I, I, I figured out some, there's a lot of repetitive, there's a, there's a scene where they are, I mean, they're standing at attention, but they are mentally, going through the process of making love. Right. And so there's a lot of repetitive. Yes, that's it. Good. I like that. You know, whatever. Right. Uh, and so I would, I, I would, uh, I set those up in, uh, I would count them because, uh, because I'm at attention with my hands behind my back. I could use my hands to count and no one could see that I was doing that, but I did it. And after I did, I was like, well, if I can memorize a one act play in 36 hours. I, can't allow myself to be lazy and not succeed at whatever I've been tasked with. Yet another endeavor to add to your roster of, of many is stand-up comedy. And so what was the itch that you were scratching to 
to depart what you were doing before that and say, you know, this is a niche and I, and I, and I want to uh, explore stand-up comedy with all the vulnerability and courage that stand-up comedy requires. And at the same time, the courage and vulnerability required for you to say, this is a niche I'm going to scratch. I'm leaving the other thing behind and this is what I'm doing. Uh, it's, yeah, it's funny you say that too, because to me, uh, the, the biggest, uh, the biggest hoot and holler that God gets out of watching me do stuff is one of the reasons I didn't graduate on time is I, I had read these books, but I didn't write the papers for these, these books that I was supposed to write because I, I just hated writing papers. I, I just, I just hated it. I, I, oh, it just drove me crazy. And, and when I first started doing play-by-play, I hated doing interviews. I, I love the play-by-play, but I hate the interviews. And and both of them, I've discovered as I've gotten older, the common theme is that I was afraid during interviews or in papers that basically people would find out that I, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I'm just a big phony, you know, that, 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 I, that I, I, I don't have any depth of knowledge, right? And, and it's, that's not necessarily true, but it was, it was just a fear that I, that I had. <laughs> so the, uh, so I worked in my dad's IT business and I moved out of the web part and I actually went into hardcore IT consulting sales, uh, suits, ties, the whole bit. I, uh, I, I left the radio business. I was fully committed. Well, I met my wife is what happened. Uh, and suddenly getting on a bus with sweaty hockey players lost its luster. <laughs> you know? So, so, uh, so I stopped doing the play by play. I stopped doing the sports show and I just focused on that. And I, and I, and I built a career and, and the rewarding thing about that was it was not just and that was another one where I studied and studied. So when I met my wife, when we were dating, she was uh, uh, working on her master's and she was uh, had to give a presentation on activity based cost management. I said, well, do it for me. And she's like, oh, no. I said, no, listen, you know all about accounting, but but I know about performing and you have to rehearse. So come on, do it. So she did it 20, 25 times. And I you know, got her real comfortable with it because she's not a public person. In fact, when she hears this, she's going to go, another story about me? Don't tell stories about me. <laughs> you know, I'm not public. <laughs> but but uh, you flash forward now to I, I'm into the IT consulting side, which is where the this is where the big projects are done. This is where careers are made. And uh, I, I got into this guy's office. I'm trying to place consultants there. And this guy come, new guy from California for ConAgra, actually. And I said, what, what can I do to help you? And I'm one of so many people knocking on his door to try to make some money. And he closes his door. And on the whiteboard, he's got this whole flow chart up there. And he goes, well, and I said, that's activity-based cost management. And I start defining these things. He goes, yes. And because I knew that, now he started getting down to X's and O's with me on this. So when I brought him consultant candidates, it wasn't just that, you know, yes, they know how to do uh, SAP sales and distribution. It was, they know how to do SAP sales and distribution. And oh, by the way, they've worked with the refrigeration module. They've worked with this, they've worked with that, which are relevant to these foodstuffs that you're trying to solve this business problem for. And when you start solving problems for people at that level, that with that kind of specificity, that has value. So my parents were getting older and they wanted to retire. They were going to you know, give me the business, but the industry was changing 
and it was just changing. It wasn't it, it, whatever you can get at uh, Costco or Walmart as as an analogy versus go to a, a fresh butcher shop and get the real prime rib here thing, right? If people don't care for that, I, I can't compete on volume. It's, we're not that big a company, right? So uh, I helped them sell the business and uh, and I got picked up by another, uh, another company and I, I did it for a little bit, but industry was changing and uh, Technosource was the company. They got bought by Spherion and they wanted uh, me to move to Des Moines. Well, my wife and I have a home here and we didn't really care to do that. So I'm sitting at home saying to my wife, I don't know what to, who to go to, what would be a good firm that would fit what I do and, and all that. She says, well, you've been watching this last comic standing thing and you keep writing jokes on your slips of paper. Why don't you be a stand-up comedian? What? She's like, you know, we'll tighten our belts, you know, take a couple less, few less vacations. And cause my wife's a professional. She runs uh uh, she runs all the domestic tax issues at a, at a big firm here in town. So I was like, okay. So again, I, I went to the books. I, I don't know, 25, 30 different books on stand-up comedy that I read and worked on. And you, know, you just look for the ones that, that click for you that make sense for you. And, and then you start doing it. And I mean, but the very first stand-up comedy thing I did, it was, a, a at the hideout, I did an open mic night and, I had memorized this page of words I'd written and I spit that out so fast. I was such a nervous wreck. I don't know if I got any laughs. Don't think I did, but if I would have, I still didn't even wait for them. I was just blowing through it. And then when I, to top it all off, when I walked off the stage, tripped over the microphone cable, knocked the microphone down onto the floor off the stage and that was my glorious debut stand-up comedy. Wow. I mean, it was a disaster. That actually sounds like really great. Uh, so I don't know if I should ask, does it get better or worse from there? <laughs> well, eventually it got better. I mean, I, there was a guy who uh, moved here from L.A. Um, he was He's divorced, and his uh, daughter was starting high school. And, and he had had quite a career in um, – Lighting, he uh, he he lit everybody. Uh, uh, bon Jovi, Michael Jackson. He lit uh, both of Michael Jackson's Super Bowls. I mean, he was really a a savant at lighting. He was great at it. And so, but he moved here because he wanted to be here for his daughter's high school years. And he had he had started doing stand up comedy out in L.A. and he had won the John Lovitz uh, New Comedian Award for that year. And, and he, he's old like me. And so, uh, cause so many, you know, so many young guys out there, a few young gals, but it's mostly young guys, but he and I are both, uh, uh, you know, we're both in our forties and he invited me to, uh, come over every week and we would do writing sessions and he literally had a big Fresnel light and a microphone. And then you get up in front of the other guy and start doing your stuff. And we would help tweak jokes and wording and, and all that stuff. And, uh, that was amazing. And so, and then meanwhile, I, I would sign up for these world series of comedy competitions that were all over and I would drive to them and I got to know comedians from across the country very quickly. So I built my comedy business network way before I had enough comedy to get out and perform. I mean, I'll never forget. I was at the very first one of these, uh, world, second, second world series of comedy. And one of the 
uh, owners of that says to me, uh, well, Hogan, uh, how much time do you have? I said, I, I got all the time you want. I, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not working. He goes, no, how many minutes of comedy do you have? I didn't even know the vernacular, right? <laughs> but I'm talking to a guy who was looking to book me already. Well, that would have been a disaster to get booked. So I had to, I had to accelerate my creating of comedy. And then you have to test it. Uh, Seinfeld used to, uh, when he was a standup before the big show, um, he had wore one of those Casio watches and legend has it that he had an alarm set every day. And when the alarm went off, he left what he was doing to go write comedy so that he could put a red X on his calendar every single day he wrote two hours of comedy every single day. Right. And he never wanted to break the chain. And I thought that's, that's a really good idea. So every single day I was at my desk in the basement writing whatever. And, and the first 30 minutes to an hour is garbage. Anyway, you just got to get it, get it out of you. And then, and then start to distill things down into real jokes and timing and you just set up and a laugh line and a tag and a tag and a, I mean, yeah, it's an art form. Don't get me wrong, but there's a construction. You can intentionally make people laugh by constructing it properly. Did you get to feel comfortable on stage? I did. In fact, so I got to the point where I was getting some gigs and so I was, I was on the road a bit and, and then it's that literally became a careful what you wish for thing because yeah, my wife is my whole universe. I, I'm deeply, deeply in love with my wife and, and, and uh, I love being around her. She's just my hobby, <laughs> you know, but I'd be gone for a week at a time, 10 days at a time. So I was like, you know what? I, I got to see if I could get, you know, be perfect as if I had a local uh, radio show, if I could do a morning show, that would be perfect. I could, I could be funny and I could uh, be home every day. So I crafted, worked on the getting a, I mean, all I, I, I was working from cassette tapes. Now this is, this is 2000, 2013. And, and I'm working from cassette, old cassettes of stuff that I had done to pull out things that I'd done on the radio. And anyway, I crafted a, a demo and uh, through the grace of God, something opened up in Fremont for uh, uh, KFMT out in Fremont, Nebraska morning show host and an operations manager. So there you are back in radio. And as listeners will know, you moved to KOS, you took the morning show there. Now, of course, listeners will be more familiar with your voice in the afternoon. And of course, the live and local segments that you, you develop that concept, you produce that, you know, you do all these interviews. And you mentioned something earlier, you said that you said you hated doing interviews. And yet I listen to those and I get a sense that you love those encounters with people across the community. There's a real joy that seems to come across with, with those. So what's that transition? What is it, what is it about live and local that really seems to have captured your uh, passion? That's a fantastic question because that's why God's laughing so hard. I hated writing. I hated interviewing. It made me all nervous. And so then I end up being a stand-up comedian who all you do is think and write. That's all you do. I had to learn how to type. I didn't know how to type. And then in, in doing, uh, in doing the stand-up, the big breakthrough for me in stand-up was 
when I embraced being the fool. Like anybody else, you, you know, you want to appear cool. You want to appear poised. You want to appear something tough, you know, whatever, whatever your mask is that you want to have on. But as I got comfortable arranging my words and, and, and consistently making people laugh with comedy that I was writing, what I realized is just make fun of me. If I just make fun of me, I've got a, I've got a spectacular life. I'm, I'm a blessed guy. I have this magnificent wife. I have a, I have a loving family. I mean, <laughs> I have nothing to fear. And so being the butt of my own jokes is uh, is a great place to be. So when you let go of that fear, now I do these interviews and I'm not afraid to say, I, I don't know what that means. Whatever somebody says, you don't know what X, Y, Z is. Well, no, I don't. I'm hoping you do. So why don't you tell me what it is? How does that work? And I know enough about things because of all this reading that I've done. Odd, odd reading. I know enough about things that when somebody brings something up, I can go, oh, well, is that like X, Y, Z? And they go, yes, it is. And then, well, give me some X's and O's on that. And then they're teaching me something that I am genuinely interested in. And that's, I'm glad that comes across in my interviews because I am genuinely interested in each person I'm talking to about what they're doing because they're doing cool stuff. A lot of them are doing stuff I've never done before. Some of it I've never even heard of. So it's really cool that every month I get a paycheck to talk to people doing cool stuff. And a lot of times they're helping other people and making the world a little better place. And that's you know, not a bad way to spend your day. <laughs> it, it feels to me like there you are reflecting on what could have been. Also some family context there about what was uh, historically for your family. And so my last question then for you relates to something you just shared about live and local, which is there are so many people doing cool stuff. And that's part of what attracts you to that particular segment that, that you produce and, and host. So when you look at your life, do you think that, that it, it kind of all makes sense? So many of these different experiences, so much about who you are in so many diverse ways. But do you think, as you look at that, that, you know, maybe the way to describe it is you feel like you have been and you are doing cool stuff? It's a, it's a, it's a cool life. And I, I think with, as you said, in, in at times taking a retrospective, not bathing in the past, but taking a retrospective to realize that, you know, I wouldn't change a thing. I mean, I, I, even the unpleasant stuff. I mean, to me, and I say this to my wife all the time, you change anything and I'm not here with you today is what I say to my wife, you know, and you can go, yeah, but wouldn't that have been cool if after stay tuned, you did this and this, and then you got, yeah, I, I just, I just got a residual check. I did one episode of Beverly Hills, nine or two, and I got a residual check yesterday, uh, which is uh, $13 and nine cents is, is what I, is what I got. And, uh, um, you know, so, so you get a series, you know, you can be set for life for money and all that stuff. But, but, but if you put it, I, I mean, I, I think 
if you're going to speculate about, you know, if I could change the past, I do. Well, here's one thing that that is part of it. Apparently, because of my family having heart issues, doesn't matter that I lifted weights and ran. I still ended up with a heart problem. So, um, sure. Let's just say I got the big Beverly 90210 series. It's me and Shannon Doherty. We're having a great time. But then on February 10th of 2018, in my big mansion out in the hills of Hollywood, I dropped dead from a heart attack. Why? Because I wasn't in Omaha, Nebraska, where I belonged, because, you know, that's where I'm supposed to be with this gal that, you know, we make each other better. So, yeah, it's I've done some really cool things. I get to do cool things every day. And the best part for me is, I mean, it's it's neat that I get to do some cool things. Like seeing that June Kaneko uh, thing at the uh, with the Omaha Symphony. That was super cool. I got to see that because of my job. Right. I love those corollary bonuses. But I love more meeting these great people on live and local meeting some great people I work with, you know, friends that we have, that type of thing, uh, meeting you. I mean, you and I, you and I first met on a uh, fun drive at KIOS and instantly banter back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Wow. What a cool thing. Met a cool guy named Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> That's the place to close. My guest today has been award-winning radio host and so much more, Mike Hogan. Mike, thank you so much for sharing some of your stories with us today. Thank you for having me, Stuart. It was really an honor. Thank you. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. 